Part One of Rastanac the Devil by Philip Jose Farmer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Rastanac the Devil, Part One by Philip Jose Farmer. Enslaved by a triangular-powered despotism, one lone man sets his sights to the six bright stars and eventual freedom of his world. After the apocalyptic war, the decimated remnants of the French huddled in the Loire Valley were gradually squeezed between two new and growing nations. The Colossus to the north was unfriendly, and obviously intended to absorb the little New France. The Colossus to the south was friendly, and offered to take the weak state into its confederation of republics as a full partner. A number of proud and independent French citizens feared that even the latter alternative meant the eventual transmutation of their tongue, religion, and nationality into those of their southern neighbor. Seeking a way of salvation, they built six huge spaceships that would hold thirty thousand people most of whom would be in deep freeze until they reached their destination. The six vessels then set off into interstellar space to find a planet that would be as much like Earth as possible. That was in the twenty-second century, over three hundred and fifty years passed before Earth heard of them again. However, we are not here concerned with the homeworld, but with the story of a man of that pioneer group who wanted to leave the new Gaul and sail again to the stars. Rastanac had no skin. He was nevertheless happier than he had been since the age of five. He was as happy as a man can be who lives deep under the ground. Underground organizations are often under the ground. They are formed into cells. Cell number one usually contains the leader of the underground. Jean-Jacques Rastanac, chief of the legal underground of the kingdom of Le Beaupre, was literally in a cell beneath the surface of the earth. He was in jail. For a dungeon, it wasn't bad. He had two cells. One was deep inside the building proper, built into the wall so that he could sit in it when he wanted to retreat from the sun or the rain. The adjoining cell was at the bottom of a well whose top was covered with a grill of thin steel bars. Here he spent most of his waking hours, forced to look upwards if he wanted to see the sky or the stars. Rastanac suffered from a chronic stiff neck. Several times during the day he had visitors. They were allowed to bend over the grill and talk down to him. A guard, one of the king's mucketeers, mucketeer is the best translation of the twenty-sixth century French noun voutouqui, stood by as a censor. When night came, Rastanac ate the meal let down by ropes on a platform. Then another of the king's mucketeers stood by with drawn épée until he had finished eating. When the tray was pulled back up and the grill lowered and locked, the mucketeer marched off with the turnkey. Rastanac sharpened his wit by calling a few choice insults to the night guard. Then he went into the cell inside the wall and lay down to take a nap. Later he would rise and pace back and forth like a caged tiger. Now and then he would stop and look upwards, scan the stars, hunch his shoulders, and resume his savage circuit of the cell. 
But the time would come when he would stand statue-still. Nothing moved except his head, which turned slowly. Some day I'll ride to the stars with you. He said it as he watched the six flying stars speed across the night sky. Six glowing stars that moved in a direction opposite to the march of the other stars. Bright as Sirius seen from Earth, strung out one behind the other like jewels on a velvet string, they hurtled across the heavens. They were the six ships on which the original Loire Valley Frenchmen had sailed out into space, seeking a new home on a new planet. They had been put into an orbit around New Gaul and left there while their thirty thousand passengers had descended to the surface in chemical-fueled rockets. Mankind, once on the fair and fresh earth of the new planet, had never again ascended to revisit the great ships. For three hundred years these six ships had circled the planet known as New Gaul, nightly beacons and glowing reminders to man that he was a stranger on this planet. When the Earthmen landed on the new planet, they had called the new land Le Bopé, or, as it was now pronounced, Le Bopfe, the beautiful country. They had been delighted, entranced with the fresh new land. After the burned, war-racked earth they just left, it was like coming to heaven. They found two intelligent species living on the planet, and they found that the species lived in peace and that they had no conception of war or poverty and they were quite willing to receive the Terrans into their society. Provided, that is, they became integrated, or, as they phrased it, natural. The Frenchmen from Earth had been given their choice. They were told, you can live with the people of the beautiful land on our terms, war with us, or leave to seek another planet. The Terrans conferred. Half of them decided to stay. The other half decided to remain only long enough to mine uranium and other chemicals. Then they would voyage onwards. But nobody from that group of Earthmen ever again stepped into the ferry rockets and soared up to the six ion-beam ships circling about Le Beaupay. All succumbed to the philosophy of the natural. Within a few generations a stranger landing upon the planet would not have known without previous information that the Terrans were not aboriginal. He would have found three species. Two were warm-blooded egg-layers who had evolved directly from reptiles without becoming mammals. The Sassarors and the Amphibs. Somewhere in their dim past, like all happy nations, they had no history. They had set up their society and been very satisfied with it since. It was a peaceful, quiet world, largely peasant where nobody had to scratch for a living and where a superb manipulation of biological forces ensured very long lives, no disease, and a social lubrication that left little to desire, from their viewpoint anyway. The government was nominally a monarchy. The kings were elected by the people and were a different species than the group each ruled. Sassaror ruled human, and vice versa, each assisted by foster brothers and sisters of the race over which they reigned. These were the so-called dukes and duchesses. The Chamber of Deputies, Le Tatapfuti, was half human and half Sassaror. The so-called kings took turns presiding over the chamber for forty-day intervals. The deputies were elected for ten-year terms by constituents who could not be deceived about their representatives' purposes because of the sensitive skins which allowed them to determine their true feeling and worth. 
In one custom alone did the ex-Terrans differ from their neighbors. This was in carrying arms. In the beginning, the Sassaror had allowed the men to wear their short rapiers so they would feel safe even though in the midst of aliens. As time went on, only the king's mucketeers and members of the official underground were allowed to carry epées. These men, it might be noticed, were the congenital adventurers, men who needed to swashbuckle and revel in the name of individualist. Like the egg-stealers, they needed an institution in which they could work off antisocial steam. From the beginning, the amphibians had been a little separate from the Sasseror, and when the Earthmen came, they did not get any more neighborly. Nevertheless, they preserved excellent relations, and they, too, participated in the changeling custom. This changeling custom was another social device set up millennia ago to keep a mutual understanding between all species on the planet. It was a peculiar institution one that the Earthmen had found hard to understand and ever more difficult to adopt. Nevertheless, once the skins had been accepted, they had changed their attitude, forgot their speculations about its origin, and threw themselves into the custom of stealing babies, or eggs, from another race and raising the children as their own. You rob my cradle, I'll rob yours. Such was their motto, and it worked. A guild of egg-stealers was formed. The human branch of it guaranteed for a price to bring you a Sassaror child to replace the one that had been stolen from you. Or if you lived on the seashore, and an amphibian had crept into your nursery and taken your baby, always under two years old according to the rules, then the guildsman would bring you an amphib, or perhaps the child of a human changeling reared by the sea-folk. You raised it and loved it as your own. How could you help loving it? Your skin told you that it was small and helpless and needed you and was, despite appearances, as human as any of your babies. Nor did you need to worry about the one that had been abducted. It was getting just as good care as you were giving this one. It had never occurred to anyone to quit the stealing and voluntary exchange of babies. Perhaps that was because it would strain even the loving nature of the skin-wearers to give away their own flesh and blood. But once the transfer had taken place, they could adapt. Or perhaps the custom was kept because tradition is stronger than law in a peasant monarchy society, and also because egg and baby stealing gave the more naturally aggressive and daring citizens a chance to work off their antisocial behavior. Nobody but a historian would have known, and there were no historians in the beautiful land. Long ago, the Sassaror had discovered if they lived meatless, they had a much easier time curbing their belligerency, obeying the skins, and remaining cooperative. So they induced the Earthmen to put a taboo on eating flesh. The only drawback to the meatless diet was that both Sassaror and man became as stunted in stature as they did in aggressiveness, the former so much that they barely came to the chins of the humans. These, in turn, would have seemed short to a Western European. But Rastanak, an Earthman, and his good friend, Mapfarity, the Sassaror giant, became taboo-breakers when they were children and played together on the beach where they first ate seafood out of curiosity, then continued because they liked it. And due to their protein diet, the Terran had grown well over six feet in height, and the Sassaror seemed to have touched off a rocket of expansion in his body with his protein-eating. 
those sassarors who shared his guilt, became meat-eaters, became ostracized, and eventually moved off to live by themselves. They were called sassaror giants, and were pointed to as an object lesson to the young of the normal sassarors and humans on the land. If a stranger had landed shortly before Rastignac was born, however, he would have noticed that all was not as serene as it was supposed to be among the different species. The cause for the flaw in the former Eden might have puzzled him if he had not known the previous history of Le Boffet. And the fact that the situation had not changed for the worst until the introduction of human changelings among the amphibians. Then it had been that blood-drinking began among them that amphibians began seducing humans to come live with them by their tales of easy immortality, and that they started the system of leaving savage little carnivores in the human nurseries. When the land-dwellers protested, the amphibs replied that these things were carried out by unnaturals or outlaws, and that the sea-king could not be held responsible. Permission was given to chalice those caught in such behavior. Nevertheless, the suspicion remained that the Amphib monarch had, in accordance with age-old procedure, given his unofficial official blessing, and that he was preparing even more disgusting and outrageous and unnatural moves. Through his control of the populace by the master skin, he would be able to do as he pleased with their minds. It was the skins that had made the universal peace possible on the planet of New Gaul and it would be the custom of the skins that would make possible the change from peace to conflict among the populace. Through the artificial skins that were put on all babies at birth, and which grew with them, attached to their body, feeding from their bloodstreams their nervous systems, the skins controlled by a huge master skin that floated in a chemical vat in the palace of the rulers, fed, indoctrinated, and attended day and night by a crew of the most brilliant scientists of the planet, gave the kings complete control over the minds and emotions of the inhabitants of the planet. Originally the rulers of New Gaul had desired only that the populace live in peace and enjoy the good things of their planet equally. But the change that had been coming gradually, the growth of conflict between the kings of the different species for control of the whole populace, was beginning to be generally felt. Uneasiness, distrust of each other, was growing among the people. Hence the legalizing of the underground, the philosophy of violence by the government, an effort to control the revolt that was brewing. Yet the land-dwellers had managed to take no action at all and to ignore the growing number of vicious acts. But not all were content to drowse. One man was aroused. He was Rastinac. They were Rastinac's hope, those six stars, the gods to which he prayed. When they passed quickly out of his sight, he would continue his pacing, meditating for the twenty-thousandth time on a means for reaching one of those ships and using it to visit the stars. The end of his fantasies was always a curse because of the futility of such hopes. He was doomed. Mankind was doomed. And it was all the more maddening because man would not admit that he was through. Ended, that is, as a human being. Man was changing into something not quite homo sapiens. It might be a desirable change, but it would mean the finish of his climb upwards. So it seemed to Rastinac, and he, being the man he was, had decided to do something about it, even if it meant violence. That was why he was now in the well dungeon. He was an advocator of violence against the status quo. Chapter 2 
There was another cell next to his. It was also at the bottom of a well and was separated from his by a thin wall of cement. A window had been set into it so that the prisoners could talk to each other. Rastignac did not care for the woman who had been let down into the adjoining cell, but she was somebody to talk to. Amphib changelings was the name given to those human beings who had been stolen from their cradles and raised among the non-humanoid amphibians as their own. The girl in the adjoining cell, Lucienne, was such a person. It was not her fault that she was a blood-drinking amphib, yet he could not help disliking her for what she had done and for the things she stood for. She was in prison because she had been caught in the act of stealing a man-child from its cradle. This was no crime, but she had left in the cradle under the covers a savage and bloodthirsty little monster that had leaped up and slashed the throat of the unsuspecting baby's mother. Her cell was lit by a cageful of glowworms. Rastignac, peering through the grill, could see her shadowy shape in the inner cell inside the wall. She rose languorously and stepped into the circle of dim orange light cast by the insects. Bazumafway, she greeted him. It annoyed him that she called him her brother, and it annoyed him even more to know that she knew it. It was true that she had some excuse for thus addressing him. She did resemble him. Like him, she had straight, glossy, blue-black hair, thick, bracket-shaped eyebrows, brown eyes, a straight nose, and a prominent chin. And where his build was superbly masculine, hers was magnificently feminine. Nevertheless, this was not her reason for so speaking to him. She knew the disgust the Landwalker had for the Amphib Changeling and she took a perverted delight in baiting him. He was proud that he seldom allowed her to see that she was annoying him. Bazoo Famte Zafip, he said. Good evening, woman of the amphibians. Mockingly, she said, Have you been watching the six flying stars, Jean-Jacques? V. I do so every time they come over. Why do you eat your heart out because you cannot fly up to them and then voyage among the stars on one of them?" He refused to give her the satisfaction of knowing his real reason. He did not want her to realize how little he thought of mankind and its chances for surviving, as humanity, upon the face of this planet, Le Bopfe. I look at them because they remind me that man was once captain of his soul. Then you admit that the Landwalker is weak? I think he is on the way to becoming non-human, which is to say that he is weak, yes. But what I say about land-man goes for sea-man, too. You changelings are becoming more amphibian every day and less human. Through the skins the amphibs are gradually changing you completely. Soon you will be completely sea-people." She laughed scornfully, exposing perfect white teeth as she did so. The sea will win out against the land. It launches itself against the shore and shakes it with the crash of its body. It eats away the rock and the dirt and absorbs it into its own self. It can't be worn away, nor caught and held in a net. It is elusive and all-powerful and never tiring." Lucienne paused for a breath. He said, "'That's a very pretty analogy, but it doesn't apply. You sea-folk are as much flesh and blood as we land-folk. What hurts us hurts you." She put a hand around one bar. 
The glow-light fell upon it in such a way that it showed plainly the webbing of skin between her fingers. He glanced at it with a faint repulsion, under which was a countercurrent of attraction. This was the hand that had indirectly shed blood. She glanced at him sideways, challenged him in trembling tones. You are not one to throw stones, Jean-Jacques. I have heard that you eat meat. Fish, not meat. That is part of my philosophy of violence," he retorted. I maintain that one of the reasons man is losing his power and strength is that he has so long been upon a vegetable diet. He is as cowed and submissive as the grass-eating beasts of the fields. Lucienne put her face against the bars. That is interesting, she said. But how did you happen to begin eating fish? I thought we amphibs alone did that. What Lucienne had just said angered him. He had no reply. Rastignac knew he should not be talking to the sea-changeling. They were glib and seductive and always searching for ways to twist your thoughts. But being Rastignac, he had to talk. Moreover, it was so difficult to find anybody who would listen to his ideas that he could not resist the temptation. I was given fish by the Sassaror Mapfarity when I was a child. We lived along the seashore. Mapfarity was a child, too, and we played together. Don't eat fish, my parents said to me. That meant eat it. So despite my distaste at the idea and my squeamish stomach, I did eat fish, and I liked it. And as I grew to manhood, I adopted the philosophy of violence, and I continued to eat fish, although I am not a changeling. What did your skin do when it detected you? Lucienne asked. Her eyes were wide and luminous with wonder, and a sort of glee as if she relished the confession of his sins. Also, he knew she was taunting him about the futility of his ideas of violence so long as he was a prisoner of the skin. He frowned in annoyance at the reminder of the skin. Much thought had he given in a weak way to the possibility of life without the skin. Ashamed now of his weak resistance to the skin, he blustered a bit in front of the teasing Amphib girl. Mapfarity and I discovered something that most people don't know, he answered boastfully. We found that if you can stand the shocks your skin gives you when you do something wrong, the skin gets tired and quits after a while. Of course, your skin recharges itself, and the next time you eat fish it shocks you again. But after very many shocks it becomes accustomed forgets its conditioning, and leaves you alone." Lucienne laughed and said in a low, conspirational tone, "'So your Sassassaror pal and you adopted the philosophy of violence because you remained fish and meat-eaters?' "'Yes, we did. When Mapfarity reached puberty he became a giant and went off to live in a castle in the forest. But we have remained friends through our connection in the underground. Your parents must have suspected that you were a fish-eater when you first proposed your philosophy of violence," she said. Suspicion isn't proof, he answered. But I shouldn't be telling you this, Lucienne. I, I feel it is safe for me to do so only because you will never have a chance to tell on me. You will soon be taken to Chalice, and there you will stay until you have been cured. She shivered and said, This Chalice, what is it? It is a place far to the north where both Terrans and Sassassarors send their incorrigibles. It is an extinct volcano whose steep-sided interior makes an inescapable prison. 
There, those who have persisted in unnatural behavior are given special treatment. They are bled? she asked, her eyes widening as her tongue flicked over her lips again hungrily. No, a special breed of skin is given to them to wear. These skins shock them more powerfully than the ordinary ones, and the shocks are associated with the habit they are trying to cure. The shocks affect a cure. Also, these special skins are used to detect hidden, unnatural emotions. They recondition the deviate. The result is that when the chaliced man is judged able to go out and take his place in society again, he is thoroughly reconditioned. Then his regular skin is given back to him, and it has no trouble keeping him in line from then on. The chaliced man is a very good citizen. And what if a revolter doesn't become chaliced? Then he stays in chalice until he decides to become so. Her voice rose sharply as she said, But if I go there and I am not fed the diet of the amphibs, I will grow old and die. No, the government will feed you the diet you need until you are reconditioned. Except, he paused. Except I won't get blood, she wailed. Then, realizing she was acting undignified before a landman, she firmed her voice. The king of the amphibians will not allow them to do this to me, she said. When he hears of it, he will demand my return, and if the king of men refuses, my king will use violence to get me back. Rastanak smiled and said, I hope he does. Then perhaps my people will wake up and get rid of their skins and make war upon your people. So that is what you philosophers of violence want, is it? Well, you will not get it. My father, the Amphib King, will not be so stupid as to declare war." "'I suppose not,' replied Rastanak. "'He will send a band to rescue you. If they're caught, they'll claim to be criminals and say they are not under the King's orders.' Lucienne looked upwards to see if a guard was hanging over the well's mouth, listening. Perceiving no one, she nodded and said, "'You have guessed it correctly.' And that is why we laugh so much at you stupid humans. You know as well as we do what's going on, but you are afraid to tell us so. You keep clinging to the idea that your turn-of-the-other-cheek policy will soften us and ensure peace." "'Not I,' said Rastanak. "'I know perfectly well there is only one solution to man's problems. That is—' "'That is violence,' she finished for him. That is what you have been preaching, and that is why you are in this cell, waiting for trial. You don't understand, he said. Men are not put into the chalice for proposing new philosophies. As long as they behave naturally, they may say what they wish. They may even petition the king that the new philosophy be made a law. The king passes it on to the chamber of deputies. They consider it and put it up to the people. If the people like it, it becomes a law. The only trouble with that procedure is that it may take ten years before the law is considered by the Chamber of Deputies. And in those ten years, she mocked him, the amphibs and the amphibian changelings will have won the planet. That is true, he said. The king of the humans is a Sassassaror, and the king of the Sassassaror is a man, said Lucienne. Our king can't see any reason for changing the status quo. After all, it is the Sassassaror who are responsible for the skins and for man's position in the sentient society of this planet. 
Why should he be favorable to a policy of violence? The Sassassorors loathe violence. And so you have preached violence without waiting for it to become a law. And for that, you are now in this cell. Not exactly. The Sassassorors have long known that to suppress too much of man's naturally belligerent nature only results in an explosion. So they have legalized illegality, up to a point. Thus the king officially made me the chief of the underground, and gave me a state license to preach, but not practice, violence. I am even allowed to advocate overthrow of the present system of government, as long as I take no action that is too productive of results. I am in jail now because the minister of ill-will put me here. He had my skin examined, and it was found to be unhealthy. He thought I'd be better off locked up until I became healthy again. But the king? Chapter 3 Lucienne's laughter was like the call of a silver-bell bird. Whatever her unhuman appetites, she had a beautiful voice. She said, How comical! And how do you, with your brave ideas, like being regarded as a harmless figure of fun, or as a sick man? I like it as well as you would," he growled. She gripped the bars of her window until the tendons on the back of her long, thin hands stood out and the membranes between her fingers stretched like wind-blown tents. Face twisted, she spat at him. Coward! Why don't you kill somebody and break out of this ridiculous mold, that skin that the Sassassorors have poured you into? Rastanak was silent. That was a good question. Why didn't he? Killing was the logical result of his philosophy, but the skin kept him docile. Yes, he could vaguely see that he had purposely shut his eyes to the destination towards which his ideas were slowly but inevitably traveling. And there was another facet to the answer to her question. If he had to kill, he would not kill a man. His philosophy was directed towards the amphibians and the sea-changelings. He said, Violence doesn't necessarily mean the shedding of blood, Lucien. My philosophy urges that we take a more vigorous action, that we overthrow some of the biosocial institutions which have imprisoned man and stripped him of his dignity as an individual. Yes, I have heard that you want man to stop wearing the skin. That is what has horrified your people, isn't it? Yes, he said, and I understand it has had the same effect among the amphibians. She bridled her brown eyes, flashing in the feeble glowworm's light. Why shouldn't it? What would we be without our skins? What indeed, he said, laughing derisively afterwards. Earnestly, she said, you don't understand. We amphibians, our skins, are not like yours. We do not wear them for the same reason you do. You are imprisoned by your skins. They, they tell you how to feel, what to think. Above all, they keep you from getting ideas about non-cooperation or non-integration with nature as a whole. That to us individualistic amphibians is false. The purpose of our skins is to make sure that our king's subjects understand what he wants so that we may all act as one unit and thus further the progress of the sea folk. The first time Rastanak had heard this statement he had howled with laughter. Now, however, knowing that she could not see the fallacy, he did not try to argue the point. The amphibs were, in their way, as hide-bound, 
no pun intended, as the land-walkers. Look, Lucien, he said, there are only three places where a man may take off his skin. One is in his own home, when he may hang it upon the hall-tree. Two is when he is, like us, in jail, and therefore may not harm anybody. The third is when a man is king. Now you and I have been without our skins for a week. We have gone longer without them than anybody except the king. Tell me, true, don't you feel free for the first time in your life? Don't you feel as if you belong to nobody but yourself, and that you are accountable to no one but yourself, and that you love that feeling? And don't you dread the day we will be let out of prison and made to wear our skins again? That day which, curiously enough, will be the very day that we will lose our freedom." Lucienne looked as if she didn't know what he was talking about. "'You'll see what I mean when we are freed and the skins are put back upon us,' he said. Immediately after, he was embarrassed. He remembered that she would go to the chalice where one of the heavy and powerful skins used for unnaturals would be fastened to her shoulders. Lucienne did not notice. She was considering the last but most telling point in her argument. "'You cannot win against us,' she said, watching him narrowly for the effect of her words. "'We have a weapon that is irresistible. We have immortality.' His face did not lose its imperturbability. She continued, And what is more, we can give immortality to anyone who casts off his skin and adopts ours. Don't think that your people don't know this. For instance, during the last year more than two thousand humans living along the beaches deserted and went over to us, the amphibs. He was a little shocked to hear this, but he did not doubt her. He remembered the mysterious case of the schooner Le Pauvre Pierre which had been found drifting and crewless, and he remembered a conversation he had with a fisherman in his home port of Marek. He put his hands behind his back and began pacing. Lucienne continued, staring at him through the bars. Despite the fact that her face was in the shadows, he could see, or feel, her smile. He had humiliated her, but she had won in the end. Rastanac quit his limited roving and called up to the guard. Shula fute The guard leaned over the grill. His large hat with its tall wings sticking from the peak was green in the daytime, but now illuminated only by a far-off torchlight and by a glowworm coiled around the band, it was black. A shuzwazwakvensiak, he said loudly. What time is it? What do you care what time it is? And he concluded with the stock phrase of the jailer unchanged through millennia and over light-years. You're not going any place, are you?" Rastanac threw his head back to howl at the guard, but stopped to wince at the sudden pain in his neck. After uttering, Sec plu, and Spuisti, both of which were close enough to the old Terran French so that a language specialist might have recognized them, he said more calmly, If you would let me out on the ground, Monsieur le Foutraque, and give me a good epi. I would show you where I am going, or at least where my sword is going. I'm thinking of a nice sheath for it." Tonight he had a special reason for keeping the attention of the king's mucketeer directed towards himself. So when the guard grew tired of returning insults, mainly because his limited imagination could invent no new ones, Rastanac began telling jokes. 
They were broad and aimed at the mucketeer's narrow intellect. Then, said Rastignac, there was the itinerant salesman whose Cephel threw a shoe. He knocked on the door of the hut of the nearest peasant and said, What was said by the salesman was never known. A strangled gasp had come from above. Chapter 4 Rastignac saw something enormous blot out the smaller shadow of the guard. Then both figures disappeared. A moment later a silhouette cut across the lines of the grill. Unoiled hinges screeched, the bars lifted. A rope uncoiled from above to fall at Rastignac's feet. He seized it and felt himself being drawn powerfully upwards. When he came over the edge of the well he saw that his rescuer was a giant sassaror. The light from the glowworm on the guard's hat lit up feebly his face, which was orthognathous, and had quite humanoid eyes and lips. Large canine teeth stuck out from the mouth, and its huge ears were tipped with feathery tufts. The forehead down to the eyebrows looked as if it needed a shave, but Rastignac knew that more light would show the blue-black shade came from many small feathers, not stubbled hair. Map Faraday, Rastignac said. It's good to see you after all these years." The Sassassaror giant put his hand on his friend's shoulder. Clenched, it was almost as big as Rastignac's head. He spoke with a voice like a lion coughing at the bottom of a deep well. "'It's good to see you again, my friend.' "'What are you doing here?' said Rastignac, tears running down his face as he stroked the great fingers on his shoulder. Mapfarity's huge ears quivered like the wings of a bat tied to a rock and unable to fly off. The tufts of feathers at their ends grew stiff and suddenly crackled with tiny sparks. The electrical display was the equivalent of the humans weeping. Both creatures discharged emotion. Their bodies chose different avenues and manifestations. Nevertheless, the sight of the other's joy affected each deeply. I have come to rescue you said Mapfarity. I caught Archambaud here, he indicated the other man, stealing eggs from my golden goose and— Raoul Archambaud, pronounced Wal-Shibvo, interrupted excitedly. I showed him my license to steal eggs from giants who were raising counterfeit geese, but he was going to lock me up anyway. He, he was going to take my skin off and feed me on meat. Meat, said Rastignac, astonished and revolted despite himself. Mapfarity, what have you been doing in that castle of yours? Mapfarity lowered his voice to match the distant roar of a cataract. I haven't been very active these last few years, he said, because I am so big that it hurts my feet if I walk very much. So I've had much time to think. And I, being logical, decided that the next step after eating fish was eating meat. It couldn't make me any larger. So... I ate meat, and while doing so I came to the same conclusion that you apparently have done independently. That is, the philosophy of—of of violence, interrupted Archambaud. Ah, Jean-Jacques, there must be some mystic bond that brings two humans of such different backgrounds as yours and the Sassassator together, giving you both the same philosophy. When I explained what you had been doing, and that you were in jail because you had advocated getting rid of the skins, Matt Faraday petitioned— the king to make an official jailbreak, said Mapfarity, with an impatient glance at the roly-poly egg-stealer. And the king agreed, 
broke in Archambaud. Provided Mapfarity would turn in his counterfeit goose, and provided you would agree to say no more about abandoning skins, but— The giant's basso profundo redundo pushed the egg-stealer's high pitch aside. If this squealer will quit interrupting, perhaps we can get on with the rescue. We'll talk later, if you don't mind. At that moment Lucienne's voice floated up from the bottom of her cell. Jean-Jacques, my love, my brave, my own, would you abandon me to the chalice? Please, take me with you. You will need somebody to hide you when the Minister of Ill-Will sends his mucketeers after you. I can hide you where no one will ever find you. Her voice was mocking, but there was an undercurrent of anxiety to it. Mapfarity muttered, She will hide us, yes, at the bottom of a sea-cave where we will eat strange food and suffer a change. Never trust an amphib, finished Archambaud for him. Mapfarity forgot to whisper. He roared. A shocked hush covered the courtyard. Only Mapfarity's wrathful breathing could be heard. Then, disembodied, Lucienne's voice floated from the well. Jean-Jacques, do not forget that I am the foster daughter of the King of the Amphibians. If you were to take me with you, I could assure you of safety and a warm welcome in the halls of the Sea King's palace. Bah! said Mapfarity. That web-footed witch! Rastanac did not reply to her. He took the broad silk belt and the sheathed epee from Archambaud and buckled them around his waist. Mapfarity handed him a mucketeer's hat. He clapped that on firmly. Last of all, he took the skin that the fat egg-stealer had been holding out to him. For the first time, he hesitated. It was his skin, the one he had been wearing since he was six. It had grown with him, fed off his blood for twenty-two years clung to him as clothing, censor, and castigator, and parted from him only when he was inside the walls of his own house, went swimming, or, as during the last seven days, when he was in jail. A week ago, after they had removed his second skin, he had felt naked and helpless and cut off from his fellow creatures. But that was a week ago. Since then, as he had remarked to Lucienne, he had experienced the birth of a strange feeling. It was, at first, frightening. It made him cling to the bars as if they were the only stable thing in the center of a whirling universe. Later, when that first giddiness had passed, it was succeeded by another intoxication. The joy of being an individual. The knowledge that he was separate, not a part of a multitude. Without the skin, he could think as he pleased. He did not have a censor. Now he was on level ground again, out of a cell. But as soon as he had put that prison shaft behind him, he was faced with the old second skin. Archambaud held it out like a cloak in his hands. It looked much like a ragged garment. It was pale and limp and roughly rectangular, with four extensions at each corner. When Rastanac put it on his back, it would sink four tiny hollow teeth into his veins, and the suckers on the inner surface of its flat body would cling to him. Its long upper extensions would wrap themselves around his shoulders and over his chest, the lower around his loins and thighs. Soon it would lose its paleness and flaccidity, become pink and slightly convex, pulsing with Rastanac's blood. Chapter 5
Rastanak hesitated for a few seconds. Then he allowed the habit of a lifetime to take over. Sighing, he turned his back. In a moment he felt the cold flesh descend over his shoulders and the little bite of the four teeth as they attached the skin to his shoulders. Then, as his blood poured into the creature, he felt it grow warm and strong. It spread out and followed the passages it had long ago been conditioned to follow, wrapped him warmly and lovingly and comfortably. And he knew, though he couldn't feel it, that it was pushing nerves into the grooves along the teeth, nerves to connect with his. A minute later he experienced the first of the expected rapport. It was nothing that you could put a mental finger on. It was just a diffused tingling, and then the sudden consciousness of how the others around him felt. They were ghosts in the background of his mind, yet pale and ectoplasmic as they were, they were easily identifiable. Mapfarity loomed above the others, a transparent colossus radiating streamers of confidence in his clumsy strength. A meat-eater, uncertain about the future, with a hope and trust in Rastanak to show him the right way, and with a strong current of anger against the conqueror who had inflicted the skin upon him. Archimbaud was a shorter phantom, roly-poly even in his psychic manifestations, emitting bursts of impatience because other people did not talk fast enough to suit him, his mind leaping on ahead of their tongues, his fingers wriggling to wrap themselves around something valuable preferably the eggs of the golden goose, and a general eagerness to be up and about and onwards. He was one round fidget on two legs, yet a good man for any project requiring action. Faintly Rastanak detected the slumbering guard as if he were the tendrils of some plant at the sea-bottom, floating in the green twilight at peace and unconscious. And even more faintly he felt Lucienne's presence shielded by the walls of the shaft. Hers was a pale and light hand, one whose fingers tapped a barely heard code of impotent rage and voiceless screaming fear. Yet beneath that anguish was a base of confidence and mockery at others. She might be temporarily upset, but when the chance came for her to do something she would seize it with every ability at her command. Another radiation dipped into the general picture and out. A wild glowworm had swooped over them and disturbed the smooth reflection built up by the skins. This was the way the skins worked. They penetrated into you and found out what you were feeling and emoting, and then they broadcast it to other close-by skins, which then projected their host's psychosomatic responses. The whole was then integrated so that each skin-wearer could detect the group feeling, and at the same time, though in a much duller manner, the feeling of the individuals of the gestalt. That wasn't the only function of the skin. The parasite created in the biofactories had several other social and biological uses. Rastanak almost fell into a reverie at that point. It was nothing unusual. The effect of the skins was a slowing-down one. The wearer thought more slowly, acted more leisurely, and was much more contented. But now, by a deliberate wrenching of himself from the feeling pattern, Rastanak woke up. There were things to do, and standing around and drinking in the lotus of the group rapport was not one of them. He gestured at the prostrate form of the mucketeer. You didn't hurt him. The Sassassaror rumbled. 
No, I scratched him with a little venom of the dream snake. He will sleep for an hour or so. Besides, I would not be allowed to hurt him. You forget that all this is carefully staged by the king's official jailbreaker." Medet, swore Rastignac. Alarmed, Archambaud said, "'What's the matter, Jean-Jacques?' "'Can't we do anything on our own? Must the king meddle in everything?' "'You wouldn't want us to take a chance and have to shed blood, would you?' breathed Archambaud. "'What are you carrying those swords for? As a decoration?' Rastignac snarled. "'Si la mefouet,' warned Mapfarity. "'If you alarm the other guards, you will embarrass them. They will be forced to do their duty and recapture you, and the jailbreaker would be reprimanded because he had fallen down on his job. He might even get a demotion.' Rastignac was so upset that his skin, reacting to the negative fields racing over the skin and the hormone imbalance of his blood, writhed away from his back. What are we, a bunch of children playing war?" Mapfarity growled. We are all God's children, and we mustn't hurt anyone if we can help it. Mapfarity, you eat meat. admitted the giant. But it is the flesh of unintelligent creatures. I have not yet shed the blood of any being that can talk with the tongue of man. Rastignac snorted and said, if you stick with me, you will some day do that, Mifway, Mapfarity. There is no other course. It is inevitable. Nature spare me the day, but if it comes, it will find Mapfarity unafraid. They do not call me giant for nothing. Rastignac sighed and walked ahead. Sometimes he wondered if the members of his underground, or anybody else for that matter, ever realized the grim conclusions formed by the philosophy of violence. The amphibians, he was sure, did and they were doing something positive about it. But it was the amphibians who had driven Rastignac to adopt a philosophy of violence. Law, he said again. Let's go. The three of them walked out of the huge courtyard and through the open gate. Nearby stood a short man whose skin gleamed black-red in the light shed by the two glowworms attached to his shoulders. The skin was oversized and hung to the ground. The king's man, however, did not think he was a comic figure. He sputtered, and the red of his face matched the color of the skin on his back. "'You took long enough,' he said accusingly, and then, when Rastignac opened his mouth to protest, the jailbreaker said, "'Never mind, never mind. Sanapwat. The thing is that we get you away fast. The Minister of Ill-Will has doubtless by now received word that an official jailbreak is planned for tonight.' He will send a company of his mucketeers to intercept you. By coming in advance of the appointed time, we shall have time to escape before the official rescue party arrives." "'How much time do we have?' asked Rastignac. The king's man said, "'Let's see. Uh, after I escort you through the rooms of the Duke, the king's foster-brother, he is most favorable to the violent philosophy, you know, and has petitioned the king to become your official patron, which petition will be considered at the next meeting of the Chamber of Deputies in three months. Let's see, where was I? Ah, yes, I escort you through the rooms of the king's brother. You will be disguised as his majesty's mucketeers, ostensibly looking for the escaped prisoners. From the rooms of the duke you will be let out through a small door in the wall of the palace itself. A car will be waiting. From then on it will be up to you. I suggest, however, that you make a dash for Mapfarity's castle. 
Follow the Rue de Nieu, that is your best chance. The mucketeers have been pulled off that boulevard. However, it is possible that Overpin, the ill-will minister, may see that order and rescind it, realizing what it means. If he does, I suppose I will see you back in your cell, Rastanac. He bowed to the Sassassaror and Archambaud, and said, And you two gentlemen will then be with him? And then what? rumbled Mapfarity. According to the law, you will be allowed one more jailbreak. Any more after that will, of course, be illegal. That is unthinkable. Rastanac unsheathed his epée and slashed it at the air. Let the mucketeers stand in my way, he said fiercely. I will cut them down with this. The jailbreaker staggered back, hands outthrust. Please, Monsieur Rastanac, please, don't even think about it. You, you know that your philosophy is as yet illegal. The shedding of blood is an act that will be regarded with horror throughout the sentient planet. People would think you are an amphibian. The amphibians know what they're doing far better than we do, answered Rastanac. Why do you think they're winning against us humans? Suddenly, before anybody could answer, the sound of blaring horns came from somewhere on the ramparts. Shouts went up, drums began to beat, calling the mucketeers to alert. And above it all came the roar of a giant Sassassaror voice. An earthship has landed in the sea, and the pilot of the ship is in the hands of the amphibians. As the meaning of the words seeped into Rastanac's consciousness, he made a sudden violent movement, and began to tear the skin from his body. Chapter 6 Rastanac ran down the steps out into the courtyard. He seized the jailbreaker's arm and demanded the key to the grills. Dazed, the white-faced official meekly and silently handed it to him. Without his skin, Rastanac was no longer fearfully inhibited. If you were forceful enough and did not behave according to the normal pattern, you could get just about anything you wanted. The average man or Sassassaror did not know how to react to his violence. By the time they had recovered from their confusion, he could be miles away. Such a thought flashed through his head as he ran towards the prison wells. At the same time, he heard the horn blasts of the king's mucketeers and knew that he shortly would have a different type of man to deal with. The mucketeers' closest approach to soldiers in this pacifistic land wore skins that conditioned them to be more belligerent than the common citizen. They carried epees, and while it was true that their points were dull and their wielders had never engaged in serious swordsmanship, the mucketeers could be dangerous from a viewpoint of numbers alone. Mapfarity bellowed, Jean-Jacques, what are you doing? He called back over his shoulder. I'm taking Lucienne with us. She can help us get the Earthman from the amphibians. The giant lumbered up behind him, threw a rope down to the eager hands of Lucienne, and pulled her up without effort to the top of the well. A second later Rastanac leapt upon Mapfarity's back, dug his hands under the upper fringe of the huge skin, and, ignoring its electrical blasts, ripped downwards. Mapfarity cried out with shock and surprise as his skin flopped on the stones like a devilfish on dry land. Archambaud ran up then, and without bothering to explain, the Sassassaror and the man seized him and peeled off his artificial hide. Now we're all free men, panted Rastanac, and the mucketeers have no way of locating us if we hide, nor can they punish us with shocks. He put the giant on his right side, Lucienne on his left, and the egg-stealer behind him. 
He removed the jailbreaker's rapier from his sheath. The official was too astonished to protest. La Mesofwa! cried Rastignac, parodying in his grotesque French the old Gallic war cry of Allons, mes enfants! The king's official came to life and screamed orders at the group of mucketeers who had poured into the courtyard. They halted in confusion. They could not hear him above the roar of horns and thunder of drums and the people sticking their heads out of windows and shouting. Rastignac scooped up with his epee one of the abandoned skins flopping on the floor and threw it at the foremost guard. It descended upon the man's head, knocking off his hat and wrapping itself around the head and shoulders. The guard dropped his sword and staggered backwards into the group. At the same time the escapees charged and bowled over their feeble opposition. It was here that Rastignac drew first blood. The tip of his epée drove past a bewildered mucketeer's blade and entered the fellow's throat just below the chin. It did not penetrate very far because of the dullness of the point. Nevertheless, when Rastignac withdrew his sword, he saw blood spurt. It was the first flower of violence, this scarlet blossom set against the whiteness of a man's skin. It would, if he had worn his skin, have sickened him. Now he exulted with a shout of triumph. Lucienne swooped up from behind him, bent over the fallen man, her fingers dipped into the blood and went to her mouth. Greedily she sucked her fingers. Rastignac struck her cheek hard with the flat of his hand. She staggered back, her eyes narrowed, but she laughed. The next moments were busy as they entered the castle, knocked down two mucketeers who tried to prevent their passage to the Duke's rooms, then filed across the long suite. The Duke rose from his writing-desk to greet them. Rastignac determined to sever all ties and impress the government with the fact that he meant a real violence, snarled at his benefactor. What The Duke was disconcerted at this harsh command, so obviously impossible to carry out. He blinked and said nothing. The escapees hurried past him to the door that gave exit to the outside. They pushed it open and stepped out into the car that waited for them. A chauffeur leaned against its thin wooden body. Mapfarity pushed him aside and climbed in. The others followed. Rastignac was the last to get in. He examined in a glance the vehicle they were supposed to make their flight in. It was as good a car as you could find in the realm. A Renault of the large class. It had a long, boat-shaped scarlet body. There wasn't a scratch on it. It had seats for six, and that it had the power to outrun most anything was indicated by the two extra pairs of legs sticking out from the bottom. There were twelve pairs of legs, equine in form and shod with the best steel. It was the kind of vehicle you wanted when you might have to take off across the country. Wheeled cars could go faster on the highway, but this Renault would not be daunted by water, plowed fields, or steep hillsides. Rastignac climbed into the driver's seat, seized the wheel, and pressed his foot down on the accelerator. The nerve spot beneath the pedal sent a message to the muscles hidden beneath the hood and the legs projecting from the body. The Renault lurched forward, steadied, and began to pick up speed. It entered a broad paved highway. Hooves drummed. Sparks shot out from the steel shoes. Rastignac guided the brainless, blind creature concealed within the body. He was helped by the somatically generated radar it employed to steer it past obstacles. When he came to the Rue des Nez, he slowed it down to a trot. There was no use tiring it out. Halfway up the gentle slope of the boulevard, however, a Ford galloped out from a side street, 
Its seats bristled with tall peaked hats with outspread glowworm wings and with drawn epées. Rastignac shoved the accelerator to the floor. The Renault broke into a gallop. The Ford turned so that it would present its broadside. As there was a fence-work of tall shrubbery growing along the boulevard, the Ford was able thus to block most of the passage. But just before his vehicle reached the Ford, Rastignac pressed the jump button. Few cars had this. Only sportsmen or the royalty could afford to have such a neural circuit installed, and it did not allow for gradations in leaping. It was an all-or-none reaction. The legs spurned the ground in perfect unison and with every bit of the power in them. There was no holding back. The nose lifted. The Renault soared into the air. There was a shout, a slight swaying as the trailing hooves struck the heads of the musketeers who had been stupid enough not to duck, and the vehicle landed with a screeching lurch upright on the other side of the ford. Nor did it pause. Half an hour later Rastignac reined in the car under a large tree whose shadow protected them. "'We're well out in the country,' he said. "'What do we do now?' asked an impatient Archambaud. First, we must know more about this Earthman, Rastignac answered. Then we can decide. End of Part One of Rastignac the Devil by Philip Jose Farmer